One of Heartbreak House. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heartbreak House by George Bernard Shaw. Characters Nurse Guinness, read by Bev Stevens. Ellie Dunn, read by Ariel Lipshaw. Captain Shotover, read by Bruce Peary. Ariadne, read by Capricia Page. Hesione Hushabai, read by Elizabeth Clett. Mazzini Dunn, read by Leonard Wilson. Hector Hushabai, read by Bob Neufeld. Mangan, read by Delmar H. Dolbeer. Randall Utterwood, read by M. B. The Burglar, read by Todd. And narrated by Elizabeth Clatt. Act One. The hilly country in the middle of the north edge of Sussex, looking very pleasant on a fine evening at the end of September, is seen through the windows of a room which has been built so as to resemble the after part of an old fashioned high pooped ship with a stern gallery. For the windows are ship built with heavy timbering and run right across the room as continuously as the stability of the wall allows. A row of lockers under the windows provides an unupholstered window-seat, interrupted by twin glass doors, respectively halfway between the stern-post and the sides. Another door strains the illusion a little by being apparently in the ship's port side, and yet leading, not to the open sea, but to the entrance-hall of the house. Between this door and the stern gallery are bookshelves. There are electric light switches beside the door leading to the hall, and the glass doors in the stern gallery. Against the starboard wall is a carpenter's bench. The vice has a board in its jaws, and the floor is littered with shavings, overflowing from a waste-paper basket. A couple of planes and a centre bit are on the bench. In the same wall, between the bench and the windows, is a narrow doorway with a half-door, above which a glimpse of the room beyond shows that it is a shelved pantry with bottles and kitchen crockery. On the starboard side, but close to the middle, is a plain oak drawing-table, with drawing-board, T-square, straight edges, set squares, mathematical instruments, saucers of water-colour, a tumbler of discoloured water, Indian ink, pencils and brushes on it. The drawing-board is set so that the draughtsman's chair has the window on its left hand. On the floor at the end of the table, on its right, is a ship's fire-bucket. On the port side of the room, near the bookshelves, is a sofa with its back to the windows. It is a sturdy mahogany article, oddly upholstered in sailcloth, including the bolster, with a couple of blankets hanging over the back. Between the sofa and the drawing-table is a big wicker chair with broad arms and a low sloping back, with its back to the light. A small but stout table of teak, with a round top and gate legs, stands against the port wall between the door and the bookcase. It is the only article in the room that suggests, not at all convincingly, a woman's hand in the furnishing. The uncarpeted floor of narrow boards is caulked and holostoned like a deck. The garden to which the glass doors lead dips to the south before the landscape rises again to the hills. Emerging from the hollow is the cupola of an observatory.
Between the observatory and the house is a flagstaff on a little esplanade, with a hammock on the east side and a long garden seat on the west. A young lady, gloved and hatted, with a dust-coat on, is sitting in the window-seat with her body twisted to enable her to look out at the view. One hand props her chin, the other hand hangs down with a volume of the Temple Shakespeare in it, and her finger stuck in the page she has been reading. A clock strikes six. The young lady turns and looks at her watch. She rises with an air of one who waits and is almost at the end of her patience. She is a pretty girl, slender, fair, and intelligent-looking, nicely but not expensively dressed, evidently not a smart idler. With a sigh of weary resignation she comes to the draughtsman's chair, sits down, and begins to read Shakespeare. Presently the book sinks to her lap, her eyes close, and she dozes into a slumber. An elderly woman-servant comes in from the hall with three unopened bottles of rum on a tray. She passes through and disappears in the pantry without noticing the young lady. She places the bottles on the shelf and fills her tray with empty bottles. As she returns with these, the young lady lets her book drop, awakening herself and startling the woman-servant, so that she all but lets the tray fall. "'God bless us!' The young lady picks up the book and places it on the table. "'Sorry to wake you, miss, I'm sure. But you are a stranger to me. What might you be waiting here for now?' "'Waiting for somebody to show some signs of knowing that I have been invited here.' "'Oh, you're invited, are you?' And has nobody come, dear, dear? A wild-looking old gentleman came and looked in at the window, and I heard him calling out, Nurse, there is a young and attractive female waiting in the poop. Go and see what she wants. Are you the nurse? Yes, miss, I'm Nurse Guinness. That was old Captain Shotover, Mrs. Hushabye's father. I heard him roaring, but I thought it was for something else. I suppose it was Mrs. Hushabye that invited you, Ducky? I understood her to do so, but really I think I'd better go. Oh, don't think of such a thing, miss. If Mrs. Hushabye has forgotten all about it, it will be a pleasant surprise for her to see you, won't it? It has been a very unpleasant surprise to me to find that nobody expects me. You'll get used to it, miss. This house is full of surprises for them that don't know our ways. Captain Shotover, looking in from the hall suddenly, an ancient but still hardy man with an immense white beard, in a reefer jacket with a whistle hanging from his neck. Nurse, there is a hold-all and a handbag on the front steps for everybody to fall over, also a tennis racket. Who the devil left them there? They are mine, I'm afraid. The captain, advancing to the drawing-table. Nurse, who is this misguided and unfortunate young lady? She says Miss Hesse invited her, sir. And had she no friends, no parents, to warn her against my daughter's invitations? This is a pretty sort of house, by heavens. A young and attractive lady is invited here. Her luggage is left on the steps for hours, and she herself is deposited in the poop and abandoned, tired and starving. This is our hospitality. These are our manners. No room ready, no hot water, no welcoming hostess. Our visitor is to sleep in the tool-shed and to wash in the duck-pond. Now it's all right, Captain. I'll get the lady some tea, and her room shall be ready before she has finished it. To the young lady. Take off your hat, Ducky, and make yourself at home. 
She goes to the door leading to the hall. The captain, as she passes him, Ducky, do you suppose, woman, that because this young lady has been insulted and neglected, you have the right to address her as you address my wretched children, whom you have brought up in ignorance of the commonest decencies of social intercourse? Never mind him, Doty. Quite unconcerned, she goes out into the hall on her way to the kitchen. Madam, will you favour me with your name? He sits down in the big wicker chair. My name is Ellie Dunn. Dunn? I had a boatswain whose name was Dunn. He was originally a pirate in China. He set up as a ship's chandler with stores which I have every reason to believe he stole from me. No doubt he became rich. Are you his daughter? No, certainly not. I am proud to be able to say that though my father has not been a successful man, nobody has ever had one word to say against him. I think my father is the best man I have ever known. He must be greatly changed. Has he attained the seventh degree of concentration? I don't understand. But how could he with a daughter? I, madam, have two daughters. One of them is Hassayani Hushabai, who invited you here. I keep this house. She upsets it. I desire to attain the seventh degree of concentration. She invites visitors and leaves me to entertain them. Nurse Guinness returns with the tea-tray, which she places on the teak table. I have a second daughter, who is, thank God, in a remote part of the empire with her numbskull of a husband. As a child she thought the figurehead of my ship, the Dauntless, the most beautiful thing on earth. He resembled it. He had the same expression, wooden, yet enterprising. She married him and will never set foot in this house again. Nurse Guinness, carrying the table with the tea-things on it to Ellie's side. Indeed, you never were more mistaken. She is in England this very moment. You have been told three times this week that she's coming home for a year for her health, and very glad you should be to see your own daughter again after all these years. I am not glad. The natural term of the affection of the human animal for its offspring is six years. My daughter Ariadne was born when I was forty-six. I am now eighty-eight. If she comes, I am not at home. If she wants anything, let her take it. If she asks for me, let her be informed that I am extremely old and have totally forgotten her. That's no talk to offer to a young lady. Here, Ducky, have some tea and don't listen to him. She pours out a cup of tea. The Captain, rising wrathfully, now before high heaven they have given this innocent child indian tea the stuff they tan their own leather insides with he seizes the cup and the teapot and empties both into the leathern bucket oh please i am so tired i should have been glad of anything oh what a thing to do the poor lamb is ready to drop you shall have some of my tea do not touch that fly-blown cake nobody eats it here except the dogs he disappears into the pantry. There's a man for you. They say he sold himself to the devil in Zanzibar before he was a captain, and the older he grows, the more I believe them. A woman's voice in the hall. Is anyone at home? Hesione? Nurse? Papa? Do come, somebody, and take in my luggage. Thumping heard, as of an umbrella on the wainscot my gracious it's miss addy lady utterward mrs hushabye's sister the one i told the captain about 
Coming, miss, coming. She carries the table back to its place by the door, and is hurrying out when she is intercepted by Lady Utterword, who bursts in much flustered. Lady Utterword, a blonde, is very handsome, very well dressed, and so precipitate in speech and action that the first impression, erroneous, is one of comic silliness. Oh, is that you, nurse? How are you? You don't look a day older. Is nobody at home? Where's Hesione? Doesn't she expect me? Where are the servants? Whose luggage is that on the steps? Where's papa? Is everybody asleep? Seeing Ellie. Oh, I beg your pardon. I suppose you are one of my nieces. Approaching her with outstretched arms. Come and kiss your aunt, darling. I'm only a visitor. It is my luggage on the steps. I'll go get you some fresh tea, Ducky. She takes up the tray. But the old gentleman said he would make some himself. Bless you. He's forgotten what he went for already. His mind wanders from one thing to another. Papa, I suppose? Yes, miss. Don't be silly, nurse. Don't call me miss. No, lovey. She goes out with the tea-tray. Lady Utterword, sitting down with a flounce on the sofa. <sighs> I know what you must feel. Oh, this house, this house! I come back to it after twenty-three years, and it is just the same. The luggage lying on the same steps, the servants spoilt and impossible. Nobody at home to receive anybody. No regular meals. Nobody ever hungry because they are always gnawing bread and butter or munching apples. And what is worse, the same disorder in ideas, in talk, in feeling. When I was a child I was used to it. I had never known anything better, though I was unhappy, and longed all the time—oh, how I longed—to be respectable, to be a lady, to live as others did, not to have to think of everything for myself. I married at nineteen to escape from it. My husband is Sir Hastings Utterwood, who has been governor of all the crowned colonies in succession. I have always been the mistress of Government House. I have been so happy. I had forgotten that people could live like this. I wanted to see my father, my sister, my nephews and nieces. One ought to, you know. And I was looking forward to it. And now the state of the house— the way I'm received? The casual impudence of that woman, Guinness, our old nurse. Really, Hassani might at least have been here. Some preparation might have been made for me. You must excuse my going on in this way, but I am really very much hurt and annoyed and disillusioned, and if I had realized it was going to be like this, I, I wouldn't have come. I have a great mind to go away without another word. Nobody has been here to receive me, either. I thought I ought to go away, too. But how can I, Lady Utterword? My luggage is on the steps, and the station fly has gone. The captain emerges from the pantry with a tray of Chinese lacquer and a very fine tea-set on it. He rests it provisionally on the end of the table, snatches away the drawing-board, which he stands on the floor against the table-legs, and puts the tray in the space thus cleared. Ellie pours out a cup greedily. Your tea, young lady. What? Another lady? I must fetch another cup. 
He makes for the pantry. Lady Utterword, rising from the sofa, suffused with emotion. Papa! Don't you know me? I'm your daughter. Nonsense. My daughter's upstairs asleep. He vanishes through the half-door. Lady Utterword retires to the window to conceal her tears. Ellie, going to her with the cup. Don't be so distressed. Have this cup of tea. He is very old and very strange. He has been just like that to me. I know how dreadful it must be. My own father is all the world to me. Oh, I'm sure he didn't mean it. The captain returns with another cup. Now we are complete. He places it on the tray. Papa, you can't have forgotten me. I'm Ariadne. I'm little Paddy Patkins. Won't you kiss me? She goes to him and throws her arms round his neck. The captain, woodenly enduring her embrace. How can you be Ariadne? You are a middle-aged woman, well-preserved, madam, but no longer young. But think of all the years and years I've been away, papa. I have had to grow old, like other people. The captain, disengaging himself. You should grow out of kissing strange men. They may be striving to attain the seventh degree of concentration. But I'm your daughter. You haven't seen me for years. So much the worse. When our relatives are at home, we have to think of all their good points, or it would be impossible to endure them. But when they are away, we console ourselves for their absence by dwelling on their vices. That is how I have come to think my absent daughter Ariadne a perfect fiend. So do not try to ingratiate yourself here by impersonating her. Ingratiating myself, indeed. <sighs> Very well, papa. She sits down at the drawing-table and pours out tea for herself. I am neglecting my social duties. You remember Dunn? Billy Dunn? Do you mean that villainous sailor who robbed you? Introducing Ellie. His daughter. He sits down on the sofa. No! Nurse Guinness returns with fresh tea. Take that hogwash away, do you hear? You've actually remembered about the tea. To Ellie. Oh, miss, he didn't forget you after all. You have made an impression. Youth, beauty, novelty, they are badly wanted in this house. I am excessively old. Hesione is only moderately young. Her children are not youthful. How can children be expected to be youthful in this house? Almost before we could speak we were filled with notions that might have been all very well for pagan philosophers of fifty but was certainly quite unfit for respectable people of any age. You were always for respectability, Miss Addy. Nurse, will you please remember that I am Lady Utterwood and not Miss Addy, nor Lovey, nor Darling, nor Doty. Do you hear? Yes, Ducky, all right. I'll tell them all they must call you my lady. She takes her tray out with undisturbed placidity. What comfort, what sense is there in having servants with no manners? Ellie, rising and coming to the table to put down her empty cup. Lady Utterword, do you think Mrs. Hushabye really expects me? Oh, don't ask me. You can see for yourself that I've just arrived, her only sister, after twenty-three years' absence. And it seems that I am not expected. What does it matter whether the young lady is expected or not? She is welcome. There are beds, there is food. I'll find a room for her myself. 
He makes for the door. Ellie, following him to stop him. Oh, please! He goes out. Lady Utterword, I don't know what to do. Your father persists in believing that my father is some sailor who robbed him. You had better pretend not to notice it. My father is a very clever man, but he always forgot things. And now that he is old, of course he is worse. And I must warn you that it is sometimes very hard to feel quite sure that he really forgets. Mrs. Hushabye bursts into the room tempestuously and embraces Ellie. She is a couple of years older than Lady Utterword, and even better-looking. She has magnificent black hair, eyes like the fish-pools of Heshbon, and a nobly modelled neck, short at the back and low between her shoulders and front. Unlike her sister, she is uncorseted, and dressed anyhow in a rich robe of black pile that shows off her white skin and statuesque contour. Ellie! Oh, my darling, my pettikins! Mwah! How long have you been here? I've been at home all the time. I was putting flowers and things in your room, and when I just sat down for a moment to try how comfortable the armchair was, I went off to sleep. Papa woke me and told me you were here. Fancy your finding no one, and being neglected and abandoned. Mwah! My poor love! She deposits Ellie on the sofa. Meanwhile, Ariadne has left the table and come over to claim her share of attention. Oh, you've brought someone with you. Introduce me. Hesione, is it possible that you don't know me? Of course, I remember your face quite well. Where have we met? Didn't Papa tell you I was here? Oh, this is really too much. She throws herself sulkily into the big chair. Papa? Yes, Papa. Our Papa, you unfeeling wretch. Rising angrily. I'll go straight to a hotel. Mrs. Hushabye, seizing her by the shoulders. My goodness, gracious goodness! You don't mean to say that you're Addy? I certainly am Addy. And I don't think I can be so changed that you would not have recognized me if you had any real affection for me. And Papa didn't think me even worth mentioning. Oh, what a lark! She pushes her back into the chair instead of kissing her, and posts herself behind it. You do look a swell. You're much handsomer than you used to be. Oh, you've made the acquaintance of Ellie, of course. She is going to marry a perfect hog of a millionaire for the sake of her father, who is as poor as a church mouse, and you must help me to stop her. Oh, please, Hesione. My petikins, the man's coming here to-day with your father to begin persecuting you, and everybody will see the state of the case in ten minutes, so what's the use of making a secret of it? He is not a hog, Hesione. You don't know how wonderfully good he was to my father, and how deeply grateful I am to him. Her father is a very remarkable man, Addy. His name is Mazzini Dunn. Mazzini was a celebrity of some kind who knew Ellie's grandparents. They were both poets, like the Brownings, and when her father came into the world, Mazzini said, Another soldier born for freedom. So they christened him Mazzini, and he has been fighting for freedom in his quiet way ever since. That's why he is so poor. I am proud of his poverty. Of course you are, Pettikins. Why not leave him in it and marry someone you love? Lady Utterword, rising suddenly and explosively. Hesione! Are you going to kiss me, or are you not? 
"'What do you want to be kissed for?' "'I don't want to be kissed, but I do want you to behave properly and decently. We are sisters. We have been separated for twenty-three years. You ought to kiss me.' Oh, to-morrow morning dear before you make up i hate the smell of powder oh you unfeeling she is interrupted by the return of the captain to ellie your room is ready ellie rises the sheets were damp but i have changed them he makes for the garden door on the port side oh what about my sheets the captain halting at the door take my advice air them or take them off and sleep in blankets you shall sleep in ariadne's old room indeed i shall do nothing of the sort that little hole i am entitled to the best spare room the captain continuing unmoved she married a numbskull she told me she would marry any one to get away from home you are pretending not to know me on purpose i will leave the house mazzini dunn enters from the hall he is a little elderly man with bulging credulous eyes and earnest manners he is dressed in a blue serge jacket suit with an unbuttoned mackintosh over it, and carries a soft black hat of clerical cut. At last! Captain Shotover, here is my father. This? Nonsense, not a bit like him. He goes away through the garden, shutting the door sharply behind him. I will not be ignored and pretended to be somebody else. I will have it out with Papa now, this instant. To Mazzini. Excuse me. She follows the captain out, making a hasty bow to Mazzini, who returns it. Mrs. Hushabye, hospitably shaking hands. "'How good of you to come, Mr. Dunn! Oh, you don't mind, Papa, do you? He is as mad as a hatter, you know, but quite harmless and extremely clever. You will have some delightful talks with him.' "'I hope so.' He draws her arm affectionately through his. "'So here you are, Ellie, dear.' I must thank you, Mrs. Hushabye, for your kindness to my daughter. I'm afraid she would have had no holiday if you had not invited her. Not at all. Very nice of her to come and attract young people to the house for us. I'm afraid Ellie is not interested in young men, Mrs. Hushabye. Her taste is on the graver, solider side. Won't you take off your coat, Mr. Dunn? You will find a cupboard for coats and hats and things in the corner of the hall. Mazzini, hastily releasing Ellie. Yes, thank you. I had uh, better. He goes out. The old brute! Who? Who? Him! He! It! Pointing after Mazzini. Graver, solider tastes, indeed! You don't mean that you were speaking like that of my father? I was. You know I was. I will leave your house at once. She turns to the door. If you attempt it, I'll tell your father why. Ellie, turning again. Oh, how can you treat a visitor like this, Mrs. Hushabye? I thought you were going to call me Hesione. Certainly not now. Very well, I'll tell your father. Oh! If you turn a hair, if you take his part against me, and against your own heart for a moment, I'll give that born soldier of freedom a piece of my mind that will stand him on his selfish old head for a week. Hesione, my father's selfish. How little you know! She is interrupted by Mazzini, who returns, excited and perspiring. Ellie, Mangan has come. I thought you'd like to know. 
Excuse me, Mr. Sashabai, the strange old gentleman. Papa, quite so. Oh, I beg your pardon, of course. I was a little confused by his manner. He is making Mangan help him with something in the garden, and he wants me too. Bosun ahoy. Oh, dear, I believe he is whistling for me. He hurries out. Now, my father is a wonderful man, if you like. Hesione, listen to me. You don't understand. My father and Mr. Mangan were boys together. Mr. Ma— I don't care what they were. We must sit down if you are going to begin as far back as that. She snatches at Ellie's waist and makes her sit down on the sofa beside her. Now, Petterkins, tell me all about Mr. Mangan. They call him Boss Mangan, don't they? He is a Napoleon of industry and disgustingly rich, isn't he? Why isn't your father rich? My poor father should never have been in business. His parents were poets, and they gave him the noblest ideas, but they could not afford to give him a profession. Fancy your grandparents, with their eyes in fine frenzy rolling. And so your poor father had to go into business. Hasn't he succeeded in it? He always used to say he could succeed if he only had some capital. He fought his way along to keep a roof over our heads and bring us up well. But it was always a struggle, always the same difficulty of not having capital enough. I don't know how to describe it to you. Poor Ellie, I know, pulling the devil by the tail. Oh, no, not like that. It was at least dignified. That made it all the harder, didn't it? I shouldn't have pulled the devil by the tail with dignity. I should have pulled hard. Hard. Well, go on. At last it seemed that all our troubles were at an end. Mr. Mangan did an extraordinarily noble thing out of pure friendship for my father and respect for his character. He asked him how much capital he wanted and gave it to him. I don't mean that he lent it to him or that he invested it in his business. He just simply made him a present of it. Wasn't that splendid of him? On condition that you married him? Oh, no, no, no! This was when I was a child. He had never even seen me. He never came to our house. It was absolutely disinterested. Pure generosity. Oh, I beg the gentleman's pardon. Well, what became of the money? We all got new clothes and moved into another house. And I went to another school for two years. Only two years? That was all. For at the end of two years my father was utterly ruined. How? I don't know. I never could understand. But it was dreadful. When we were poor, my father had never been in debt. But when he launched out into business on a large scale, he had to incur liabilities. When the business went into liquidation, he owed more money than Mr. Mangan had given him. Bit off more than he could chew, I suppose. I think you are a little unfeeling about it. Oh, my petikins, you mustn't mind my way of talking. I was quite as sensitive and particular as you once, but I've picked up so much slang from the children that I really am hardly presentable. I suppose your father had no head for business and made a mess of it. Oh, that just shows how entirely you are mistaken about him. The business turned out a great success. It now pays forty-four per cent after deducting the excess profits tax. Then why aren't you rolling in money? I don't know. It seems very unfair to me. You see, my father was made bankrupt. 
it nearly broke his heart, because he had persuaded several of his friends to put money into the business. He was sure it would succeed, and events proved that he was quite right. But they all lost their money. It was dreadful. I don't know what we should have done but for Mr. Mangan." "'What? Did the boss come to the rescue again, after all his money being thrown away?' "'He did indeed, and never uttered a reproach to my father. He bought what was left of the business—the buildings and the machinery and things—from the official trustee for enough money to enable my father to pay six and eightpence in the pound and get his discharge. Everyone pitied Papa so much, and saw so plainly that he was an honourable man, that they let him off at six and eightpence instead of ten shillings. Then Mr. Mangan started a company to take up the business, and made my father a manager in it to save us from starvation, for I wasn't earning anything then." "'Quite a romance! And when did the boss develop the tender passion?' "'Oh, that was years after, quite lately. He took the chair one night at a sort of people's concert. I was singing there. As an amateur, you know, half a guinea for expenses and three songs with three encores. He was so pleased with my singing that he asked might he walk home with me. I never saw anyone so taken aback as he was when I took him home and introduced him to my father, his own manager. It was then that my father told me how nobly he had behaved. Of course it was considered a great chance for me, as he is so rich. And and we drifted into a sort of understanding. I suppose I should call it an engagement." Mrs. Hushaby, rising and marching about. "'You may have drifted into it, but you will bounce out of it, my pettikins, if I am to have anything to do with it.' "'No, it's no use. I am bound in honour and gratitude. I will go through with it.' Mrs. Hushaby, behind the sofa, scolding down at her. You know, of course, that it's not honourable or grateful to marry a man you don't love. Do you love this Mangan man?" Yes, at least. I don't want to know about at least. I want to know the worst. Girls of your age fall in love with all sorts of impossible people, especially old people. I like Mr. Mangan very much, and I shall always be— Grateful to him for his kindness to dear father, I know. Anybody else? What do you mean? Anybody else? Are you in love with anybody else? Of course not. Hm. The book on the drawing-table catches her eye. She picks it up, and evidently finds the title very unexpected. She looks at Ellie and asks, Quite sure you're not in love with an actor? No, no. Why? What put such a thing into your head? This is yours, isn't it? Why else should you be reading Othello? My father taught me to love Shakespeare." Mrs. Hushaby flinging the book down on the table. Oh, "'Really? Your father does seem to be about the limit.' "'Do you never read Shakespeare, Hesione? That seems to me so extraordinary. I like Othello.' "'Do you indeed? He was jealous, wasn't he?' "'Oh, not that. I think all the part about jealousy is horrible. But don't you think it must have been a wonderful experience for Desdemona? brought up so quietly at home, to meet a man who had been out in the world doing all sorts of brave things and having terrible adventures, and yet finding something in her that made him love to sit and talk with her and tell her about them. That's your idea of romance, is it? Not romance, exactly. It might really happen. Ellie's eyes show that she is not arguing, but in a daydream. 
Mrs. Hushabye, watching her inquisitively, goes deliberately back to the sofa and resumes her seat beside her. "'Ellie, darling, have you noticed that some of those stories that Othello told Desdemona couldn't have happened?' "'Oh, no. Shakespeare thought they could have happened.' Mm "'Hm. Desdemona thought they could have happened. But they didn't.' Why do you look so enigmatic about it? You are such a sphinx. I never know what you mean. Desdemona would have found him out if she had lived, you know. I wonder. Was that why he strangled her? Othello was not telling lies. How do you know? Shakespeare would have said if he was. Hesione, there are men who have done wonderful things. Men like Othello, only, of course, white and very handsome, and— Ah, now we're coming to it. Tell me all about him. I knew there must be somebody, or you'd never have been so miserable about Mangan. You'd have thought it quite a lark to marry him. Hesione, you are dreadful. But I don't want to make a secret of it, though, of course, I don't tell everybody. Besides, I don't know him. Don't know him? What does that mean? Well, of course, I know him to speak to. But you want to know him ever so much more intimately, eh? No, no, I know him quite almost intimately. You don't know him, and you know him almost intimately. How lucid! I mean that he does not call on us. I, I got into conversation with him by chance, at a concert. You seem to have rather a gay time at your concerts, Ellie. Not at all. We talked to everyone in the green room waiting for our turns. I thought he was one of the artists. He looked so splendid. But he was only one of the committee. I happened to tell him that I was copying a picture at the National Gallery. I make a little money that way. I can't paint much, but as it's always the same picture I can do it pretty quickly and get two or three pounds for it. It happened that he came to the National Gallery one day. One student's day paid sixpence to stumble about through a crowd of easels when he might have come in next day for nothing and found the floor clear. Quite by accident? No, on purpose. He liked talking to me. He knows lots of the most splendid people, fashionable women who are all in love with him. But he ran away from them to see me at the National Gallery and persuade me to come with him for a drive round Richmond Park in a taxi. My petticins, you have been going it. It's wonderful what you good girls can do without any one saying a word. I am not in society, Hesione. If I didn't make acquaintances in that way, I shouldn't have any at all. Well, no harm if you know how to take care of yourself. May I ask his name? Marcus Darnley. Marcus Darnley? What a splendid name! Oh, I'm so glad you think so. I think so, too, but I was afraid it was only a silly fancy of my own. Hmm. Is he one of the Aberdeen Darnleys? Nobody knows. Just fancy. He was found in an antique chest. A what? An antique chest, one summer morning in a rose garden, after a night of the most terrible thunderstorm. What on earth was he doing in the chest? Did he get into it because he was afraid of the lightning? Oh, no, no, he was a baby. The name Marcus Darnley was embroidered on his baby clothes, and five hundred pounds in gold. Ellie? The garden of the Viscount. De Rougemont? No. De la Roche-Jacquelin, a French family, a Vicomte. His life has been one long romance. 
A tiger? Slain by his own hand? Oh, no, nothing vulgar like that. He saved the life of the tiger from a hunting party, one of King Edward's hunting parties in India. The king was furious. That was why he never had his military services properly recognised. But he doesn't care. He is a socialist and despises rank, and has been in three revolutions fighting on the barricades. How can you sit there telling me such lies? You, Ellie, of all people! And I thought you were a perfectly simple, straightforward, good girl. Ellie, rising, dignified, but very angry. Do you mean you don't believe me? Of course I don't believe you. You're inventing every word of it. Do you take me for a fool? Ellie stares at her. Her candour is so obvious that Mrs. Hushabye is puzzled. Good-bye, Hesione. I'm very sorry. I see now that it sounds very improbable as I tell it. But I can't stay if you think that way about me. Mrs. Hushabye, catching her dress. Oh, you shan't go. I couldn't be so mistaken. I know too well what liars are like. Somebody has really told you all this. Hesione, don't say that you don't believe him. I couldn't bear that. Of course I believe him, dearest. But you should have broken it to me by degrees. Drawing her back to her seat. Now, tell me all about him. Are you in love with him? Oh, no, I'm not so foolish. I don't fall in love with people. I'm not so silly as you think. I see. Only something to think about, to give some interest and pleasure to life. Just so. That's all, really. It makes the hours go fast, doesn't it? No tedious waiting to go to sleep at nights, and wondering whether you will have a bad night. How delightful it makes waking up in the morning. How much better than the happiest dream. All life transfigured. No more wishing one had an interesting book to read, because life is so much happier than any book. No desire but to be alone, and not to have to talk to any one. To be alone, and just think about it." Ellie, embracing her. "'Hesione, you are a witch. How do you know? Oh, you are the most sympathetic woman in the world!' Mrs. Hushabye, caressing her. "'Petikins! My petikins, how I envy you! And how I pity you!' "'Pity me? Oh, why?' A very handsome man of fifty, with mousquetaire moustaches, wearing a rather dandified, curly-brimmed hat, and carrying an elaborate walking-stick, comes into the room from the hall, and stops short at sight of the women on the sofa. Ellie, seeing him and rising in glad surprise. "'Oh, Hesione! This is Mr. Marcus Darnley!' Mrs. Hushabye, rising. <laughs> "'What a lark! He is my husband!' "'But now—' She stops suddenly, then turns pale and sways. Mrs. Hushabye, catching her and sitting down with her on the sofa. "'Steady, my petikins!' The man, with a mixture of confusion and effrontery, depositing his hat and stick on the teak table. "'My real name, Miss Dunn, is Hector Hushabye. I leave you to judge whether it is a name any sensitive man would care to confess to.' I never use it when I can possibly help it. 
I have been away for nearly a month, and I had no idea you knew my wife, or that you were coming here. I am none the less delighted to find you in our little house. I don't know what to do. Please, may I speak to Papa? Do leave me. I can't bear it. Be off, Hector. I... Quick, quick, get out. If you think it better. He goes out, taking his hat with him, but leaving the stick on the table. Mrs. Hushabye, laying Ellie down at the end of the sofa. Now, Petticins, he's gone. There's nobody but me. You can let yourself go. Don't try to control yourself. Have a good cry. Ellie, raising her head. Damn! Splendid! Oh, what a relief! I thought you were going to be broken-hearted. Never mind me. Damn him again! I am not damning him. I am damning myself for being such a fool. Rising. How could I let myself be taken in so? She begins prowling to and fro, her bloom gone, looking curiously older and harder. Why not, Petikins? Very few young women can resist Hector. I couldn't when I was your age. He is really rather splendid, you know. Ellie, turning on her. Splendid? Yes, splendid-looking, of course. But how can you love a liar? I don't know. But you can, fortunately. Otherwise there wouldn't be much love in the world. But to lie like that, to be a boaster, a coward— Petikins, none of that, if you please. If you hint the slightest doubt of Hector's courage, he will go straight off and do the most horribly dangerous things to convince himself that he isn't a coward. Here's a dreadful trick of getting out of one third-floor window and coming in at another, just to test his nerve. He has a whole drawer full of Albert medals for saving people's lives. He never told me that. He never boasts of anything he really did. He can't bear it, and it makes him shy if anybody else does. All his stories are made-up stories. Do you mean that he is really brave, and really has adventures, and yet tells lies about things that he never did and that never happened? Yes, Petikins, I do. People don't have their virtues and vices in sets. They have them anyhow, all mixed. There's something odd about this house, Hesione, and even about you. I don't know why I'm talking to you so calmly. I have a horrible fear that my heart is broken. But that heartbreak is not like what I thought it must be. Mrs. Hushabye, fondling her. It's only life educating you, Petikins. How do you feel about Boss Mangan now? Ellie, disengaging herself with an expression of distaste. Oh, how can you remind me of him, Hesione? Sorry, dear. I think I hear Hector coming back. You don't mind now, do you, dear? Not in the least. I am quite cured. Mazzini Dunn and Hector come in from the hall. Hector, as he opens the door and allows Mazzini to pass in. One second more, and she would have been a dead woman. Dear, dear, what an escape. Ellie, my love, Mr. Hushabye has just been telling me the most extraordinary— Yes, I've heard it. She crosses to the other side of the room. Hector, following her. Not this one. I'll tell it to you after dinner. I think you'll like it. The truth is, I made it up for you, and was looking forward to the pleasure of telling it to you. But in a moment of impatience at being turned out of the room, I threw it away on your father. Ellie, turning at bay with her back to the carpenter's bench, scornfully self-possessed. 
It was not thrown away. He believes it. I should not have believed it. Ellie is very naughty, Mr. Hushabai. Of course she does not really think that. He goes to the bookshelves and inspects the titles of the volumes. Boss Mangan comes in from the hall, followed by the captain. Mangan, carefully frock-coated as for church or for a director's meeting, is about fifty-five, with a careworn, mistrustful expression, standing a little on an entirely imaginary dignity, with a dull complexion, straight, lustreless hair, and features so entirely commonplace that it is impossible to describe them. Captain Shotover to Mrs. Hushabye, introducing the newcomer. Says his name is Mangan, not able-bodied. How do you do, Mr. Mangan? Mangan, shaking hands. Very pleased. Dunn's lost his muscle but recovered his nerve. Men seldom do after three attacks of delirium tremens. He goes into the pantry. I congratulate you, Mr. Dunn. I am a lifelong teetotaler. You will find it far less trouble to let Papa have his own way than try to explain. But three attacks of delirium tremens, really. Do you know my husband, Mr. Mangan? She indicates Hector. Mangan, going to Hector, who meets him with outstretched hand. Very pleased. Turning to Ellie. I hope, Miss Ellie, you have not found the journey down too fatiguing. They shake hands. Hector, show Mr. Dunn his room. He takes Mazzini out. You haven't shown me my room yet, Hesione. Oh, how stupid of me! Come along. Make yourself quite at home, Mr. Mangan. Papa will entertain you. Papa! Come and explain the house to Mr. Mangan! She goes out with Ellie. The captain comes from the pantry. You're going to marry Dunn's daughter. Don't. You're too old. Well, that's fairly blunt, Captain. It's true. She doesn't think so. She does. Older men than I have made fools of themselves. That also is true. I don't see that this is any business of yours. It is everybody's business. The stars in their courses are shaken when such things happen. I'm going to marry her all the same. How do you know? I intend to. I mean to, see? I never made up my mind to do a thing yet that I didn't bring it off. That's the sort of man I am, and there will be a better understanding between us when you make up your mind to that, Captain. You frequent picture palaces. Perhaps I do. Who told you? Talk like a man, not like a movie. You mean that you make a hundred thousand a year. I don't boast. But when I meet a man that makes a hundred thousand a year, I take off my hat to that man and stretch out my hand to him and call him brother. Then you also make a hundred thousand a year, hey? No, I can't say that. Fifty thousand, perhaps. His half-brother only. See here, Captain Shotover, I don't quite understand my position here. I came here on your daughter's invitation. Am I in her house or in yours? You are beneath the dome of heaven in the house of God. What is true within these walls is true outside them. Go out on the seas, climb the mountains, wander through the valleys. She is still too young. But I'm very little over fifty. You are still less under sixty. Boss Mangan, you will not marry the pirate's child. He carries the tray away into the pantry. Mangan, following him to the half-door. What pirate's child? What are you talking about? Captain Shotover, in the pantry. Ellie Dunn, you will not marry her. Who will stop me? Captain Shotover, 
emerging. My daughter. He makes for the door leading to the hall. Mangan, following him. Mrs. Hushabye, do you mean to say she brought me down here to break it off? Captain Shotover, stopping and turning on him. I know nothing more than I have seen in her eye. She will break it off. Take my advice. Marry a West Indian negress. They make excellent wives. I was married to one myself for two years. Well, I am damned. I thought so. I was, too, for many years. The negress redeemed me. This is queer. I, I ought to walk out of this house. Why? Well, many men would be offended by your style of talking. Nonsense. It's the other sort of talking that makes quarrels. Nobody ever quarrels with me. A gentleman, whose first-rate tailoring and frictionless manners proclaim the well-bred West Ender, comes in from the hall. He has an engaging air of being young and unmarried, but on close inspection is found to be at least over forty. Excuse my intruding in this fashion, but there is no knocker on the door, and uh, the bell does not seem to ring. Why should there be a knocker? Why should the bell ring? The door is open. Precisely. So I ventured to come in. Quite right. I will see about a room for you. He makes for the door. The gentleman, stopping him. But I'm afraid you don't know who I am. Do you suppose that at my age I make distinctions between one fellow-creature and another? He goes out. Mangan and the newcomer stare at one another. Strange character, Captain Shotover, sir. Very. Hesione, another person has arrived and wants a room. Man about town, well-dressed, fifty. Fancy Hesione's feelings. May I ask, are you a member of the family? No. I am. At least a collection. Mrs. Hushabye comes back. How do you do? How good of you to come! I'm very glad indeed to make your acquaintance, Hesione. Instead of taking her hand, he kisses her. At the same moment the captain appears in the doorway. You will excuse my kissing your daughter, Captain, when I tell you that— Stuff! Every one kisses my daughter. Kiss her as much as you like. He makes for the pantry. Thank you. Uh, one moment, Captain. The captain halts and turns. The gentleman goes to him affably. Do you happen to remember— uh, but you probably don't, as it occurred many years ago, that your younger daughter married a numbskull. Yes. She said she'd marry anybody to get away from this house. I should not have recognized you. Your head is no longer like a walnut. Your aspect is softened. You have been boiled in bread and milk for years and years, like other married men. Poor devil. He disappears into the pantry. Mrs. Hushabye going past Mangan to the gentleman and scrutinizing him. "'I don't believe you are Hastings Utterword.' "'I'm not.' "'Then what business had you to kiss me?' "'I thought I would like to. The fact is, I am Randall Utterword, the unworthy younger brother of Hastings. I was abroad, diplomatizing when he was married.' Lady Utterword, dashing in. "'Hassani, where is the key of the wardrobe in my room?' My diamonds are in my dressing-bag. I must lock it up. Recognizing the stranger with a shock. Randall, how dare you! She marches at him past Mrs. Hushabye, who retreats and joins Mangan near the sofa. How dare I what? I'm not doing anything. Who told you I was here? Hastings, you had just left when I called on you at Claridge's, so I followed you down here. You're looking extremely well. Don't presume to tell me so. What is wrong with Mr. Randall, Addie? Oh, nothing. But he has no right to come bothering you and papa without being invited. She goes to the window-seat and sits down, 
turning away from them ill-humouredly and looking into the garden, where Hector and Ellie are now seen strolling together. "'I think you have not met Mr. Mangan, Addy.' Lady Utterword, turning her head and nodding coldly to Mangan. "'I beg your pardon. Randall, you have flustered me so. I make a perfect fool of myself.' "'Lady Utterword, my sister, my younger sister.' Mangan, bowing. "'Pleased to meet you, Lady Utterword.' "'Who's that gentleman walking in the garden with Miss Dunn?' "'I don't know. She quarrelled mortally with my husband only ten minutes ago, and I didn't know anyone else had come. It must be a visitor.' She goes to the window to look. "'Oh! It is Hector. They'd made it up.' "'Your husband? That handsome man?' "'Well, why shouldn't my husband be a handsome man?' Randall, joining them at the window. One's husband never is, Ariadne. He sits by Lady Utterword on her right. One's sister's husband always is, Mr. Randall. Don't be vulgar, Randall. And you, Hesione, are just as bad. Ellie and Hector come in from the garden by the starboard door. Randall rises. Ellie retires into the corner near the pantry. Hector comes forward, and Lady Utterword rises, looking her very best. Hector, this is Addie. Not this lady. Why not? Hector, looking at her with a piercing glance of deep but respectful admiration, his moustache bristling. I thought— Pulling himself together. I beg your pardon, Lady Utterward. I am extremely glad to welcome you at last under our roof. He offers his hand with grave courtesy. She wants to be kissed, Hector. Hesione. But she still smiles. Call her Addy, and kiss her like a good brother-in-law, and have done with it." She leaves them to themselves. "'Behave yourself, Hesione. Lady Utterword is entitled not only to hospitality, but to civilization.' "'Thank you, Hector.' They shake hands cordially. Mazzini Dunn is seen crossing the garden from starboard to port. Captain Shotover, coming from the pantry and addressing Ellie. "'Your father has washed himself.' He often does, Captain Shotover. A strange conversion. I saw him through the pantry window. Mazzini Dunn enters through the port window door, newly washed and brushed, and stops, smiling benevolently, between Mangan and Mrs. Hushabye. Mr. Mazzini Dunn, Lady—oh, I forgot you've met. Miss Dunn. Mazzini, walking across the room to take Ellie's hand, and beaming at his own naughty irony. I have met Miss Dunn also. She is my daughter." He draws her arm through his caressingly. "'Of course! How stupid! Mr. Utterword, my sister's, uh—' Randall, shaking hands agreeably. "'Her brother-in-law, Mr. Dunn. How do you do?' "'This is my husband.' "'We have met, dear. Don't introduce us any more.' He moves away to the big chair and adds, "'Won't you sit down, Lady Utterword?' She does so very graciously. "'Sorry. I hate it. It's like making people show their tickets.' "'How little it tells us, after all. The great question is not who we are, but what we are.' "'Ha! Huh. What are you?' "'What am I?' "'A thief, a pirate, and a murderer.' "'I assure you, you are mistaken.' "'An adventurous life, but what does it end in? Respectability.' 
a ladylike daughter the language and appearance of a city missionary let it be a warning to all of you he goes out through the garden i hope nobody here believes that i am a thief a pirate or a murderer mrs hushaby will you excuse me a moment i must really go and explain he follows the captain it's no use you'd really better but dunn has vanished we had better all go out and look for some tea we never have regular tea but you can always get some when you want the servants keep it stewing all day the kitchen veranda is the best place to ask may i show you she goes to the starboard door randall going with her thank you i don't think i'll take any tea this afternoon but if you will show me the garden there's nothing to see in the garden except papa's observatory and a gravel pit with a cave where he keeps dynamite and things of that sort however it's pleasanter out of doors so come along dynamite isn't that rather risky well we don't sit in the gravel pit when there's a thunderstorm that's something new what is the dynamite for to blow up the human race if it goes too far he is trying to discover a psychic ray that will explode all the explosives at the well of the mahatma the captain's tea is delicious mr utterword mrs hushaby stopping in the doorway do you mean to say that you've had some of my father's tea that you got round him before you were ten minutes in the house i did you little devil she goes out with randall won't you come miss ellie i'm too tired i'll take a book up to my room and rest a little she goes to the bookshelf right you can't do better but i'm disappointed he follows randall and mrs hushaby ellie hector and lady utterword are left hector is close to lady utterword they look at ellie waiting for her to go ellie looking at the title of a book do you like stories of adventure lady utterword of course dear then i'll leave you to mr hushaby she goes out through the hall that girl is mad about tales of adventure the lies i have to tell her lady utterword not interested in ellie when you saw me what did you mean by saying that you thought and then stopping short what did you think hector folding his arms and looking down at her magnetically may i tell you of course it will not sound very civil i was on the point of saying i thought you were a plain woman oh for shame hector what right had you to notice whether i am plain or not listen to me ariadne until to-day i have seen only photographs of you and no photograph can give the strange fascination of the daughters of that supernatural old man there is some damnable quality in them that destroys men's moral sense and carries them beyond honour and dishonour you know that don't you perhaps i do hector but let me warn you once for all that i am a rigidly conventional woman you may think because i'm a short over that i'm a bohemian because we are all so horribly bohemian but i'm not i hate and loathe bohemianism no child brought up in a strict puritan household ever suffered from puritanism as i suffered from our bohemianism our children are like that they spend their holidays in the houses of their respective schoolfellows i shall invite them for christmas their absence leaves us both without our natural chaperones children are certainly most inconvenient sometimes but intelligent people can always manage 
unless they are bohemian you are no bohemian but you are no puritan either your attraction is alive and powerful what sort of woman do you count yourself i am a woman of the world hector and i can assure you that if you will only take the trouble always to do the perfectly correct thing and to say the perfectly correct thing you can do just what you like an ill-conducted careless woman gets simply no chance an ill-conducted careless man is never allowed within arm's length of any woman worth knowing i see you are neither a bohemian woman nor a puritan woman you are a dangerous woman on the contrary i am a safe woman you are a most accursedly attractive woman mind i am not making love to you i do not like being attracted but you had better know how i feel if you're going to stay here you are an exceedingly clever lady killer hector and terribly handsome i am quite a good player myself at that game it is quite understood that we are only playing quite i am deliberately playing the fool out of sheer worthlessness lady utterword rising brightly well you are my brother-in-law hesione asked you to kiss me he seizes her in his arms and kisses her strenuously oh that was a little more than play brother-in-law she pushes him suddenly away you shall not do that again in effect you got your claws deeper into me than i intended mrs hushaby coming in from the garden don't let me disturb you i only want a cap to put on daddiest the sun is setting and he'll catch cold she makes for the door leading to the hall your husband is quite charming darling he has actually condescended to kiss me at last i shall go into the garden it's cooler now she goes out by the port door take care dear child i don't believe any man can kiss addie without falling in love with her she goes into the hall hector striking himself on the chest fool goat mrs hushaby comes back with the captain's cap your sister is an extremely enterprising old girl where's miss dunn mangan says she has gone up to her room for a nap addie won't let you talk to ellie she has marked you for her own she has the diabolical family fascination i began making love to her automatically well, what am i to do i can't fall in love and i can't hurt a woman's feelings by telling her so when she falls in love with me and as women are always falling in love with my moustache i get landed in all sorts of tedious and terrifying flirtations in which i'm not a bit in earnest oh neither is addie she has never been in love in her life though she has always been trying to fall in head over ears she is worse than you because you had one real go at least with me that was a confounded madness i can't believe that such an amazing experience is common it has left its mark on me i believe that is why i have never been able to repeat it <laughs> we were frightfully in love with one another hector it was such an enchanting dream that i have never been able to grudge it to you or any one else since i have invited all sorts of pretty women to the house on the chance of giving you another turn but it never has come off i don't know that i want it to come off it was damned dangerous you fascinated me but i loved you so it was heaven 
This sister of yours fascinates me, but I hate her, so it is hell. I shall kill her if she persists. Nothing will kill Addie. She is as strong as a horse. Now, I am going off to fascinate somebody. The Foreign Office, Toff, Randall? Goodness gracious, no! Why should I fascinate him? I presume you don't mean that bloated capitalist Mangan. Hmm. I think he had better be fascinated by me than by Ellie. She is going into the garden when the captain comes in from it with some sticks in his hand. What have you got there, Daddyest? Dynamite. Ah, oh, you've been to the gravel pit. Don't drop it about the house. There's a dear. She goes into the garden, where the evening light is now very red. Listen, O oh sage. How long dare you concentrate on a feeling without risking having it fixed in your consciousness all the rest of your life? Ninety minutes, an hour and a half. He goes into the pantry. Hector, left alone, contracts his brows and falls into a daydream. He does not move for some time. Then he folds his arms. Then, throwing his hands behind him and gripping one with the other, he strides tragically once to and fro. Suddenly he snatches his walking-stick from the teak table and draws it, for it is a sword-stick. He fights a desperate duel with an imaginary antagonist, and after many vicissitudes runs him through the body up to the hilt. He sheathes his sword and throws it on the sofa, falling into another reverie as he does so. He looks straight into the eyes of an imaginary woman, seizes her by the arms, and says in a deep and thrilling tone, "'Do you love me?' The captain comes out of the pantry at this moment, and Hector, caught with his arms stretched out and his fists clenched, has to account for his attitude by going through a series of gymnastic exercises. That sort of strength is no good. You will never be as strong as a gorilla. What is the dynamite for? To kill fellows like Mangan. No use. They will always be able to buy more dynamite than you. I will make a dynamite that he cannot explode. And that you can, eh? Yes, when I have attained the seventh degree of concentration. What's the use of that? You never do attain it. What then is to be done? Are we to be kept forever in the mud by these hogs to whom the universe is nothing but a machine for greasing their bristles and filling their snouts? Are Mangan's bristles worse than Randall's lovelocks? We must win powers of life and death over them both. I refuse to die until I have invented the means. Who are we that we should judge them? What are they that they should judge us? Yet they do, unhesitatingly. There is enmity between our seed and their seed. They know it and act on it, strangling our souls. They believe in themselves. When we believe in ourselves, we shall kill them. It is the same seed. You forget that your pirate has a very nice daughter. Mangan's son may be a Plato. Randall's a Shelley what was my father the damnedest scoundrel i ever met he replaces the drawing-board sits down at the table and begins to mix a wash of colour precisely well dare you kill his innocent grandchildren they are mine also just so we are members one of another he throws himself carelessly on the sofa i tell you i have often thought of this killing of human vermin many men have thought of it Decent men are like Daniel in the lion's den. Their survival is a miracle, and they do not always survive. 
We live among the Mangans and Randalls and Billy Dunns, as they, poor devils, live among the diseased germs and the doctors and the lawyers and the parsons and the restaurant chefs and the tradesmen and the servants and all the rest of the parasites and blackmailers. What are our terrors to theirs? Give me the power to kill them, and I'll spare them in sheer fellow-feeling. Oh, I should kill myself if I believed that. I must believe that my spark, small as it is, is divine, and that the red light over their door is hell-fire. I should spare them in simple magnanimous pity. You can't spare them until you have the power to kill them. At present they have the power to kill you. There are millions of blacks over the water for them to train and let loose on us. They're going to do it. They're doing it already. They're too stupid to use their power. Captain Shotover, throwing down his brush and coming to the end of the sofa. Do not deceive yourself. They do use it. We kill the better half of ourselves every day to propitiate them. The knowledge that these people are there to render all our aspirations barren prevents us having the aspirations and when we are tempted to seek their destruction they bring forth demons to delude us disguised as pretty daughters and singers and poets and the like for whose sake we spare them hector sitting up and leaning towards him may not hesione be such a demon brought forth by you lest i should slay you that is possible she has used you up and left you nothing but dreams as some women do vampire women demon women men think the world well lost for them and lose it accordingly who are the men that do things the husbands of the shrew and of the drunkard the men with the thorn in the flesh walking distractedly away towards the pantry i must think these things out turning suddenly but i go on with the dynamite none the less i will discover a ray mightier than any x-ray a mind-ray that will explode the ammunition in the belt of my adversary before he can point his gun at me and i must hurry i am old i have no time to waste in talk he is about to go into the pantry and hector is making for the hall when hesione comes back daddy is you and hector must come and help me to entertain all these people what on earth were you shouting about? Hector, stopping in the act of turning the door-handle. He is madder than usual. We all are. I must change. He resumes his door-opening. Stop! Stop! Come back, both of you! Come back! They return reluctantly. Money is running short. Money? Where are my April dividends? Where is the snow that fell last year? Where is all the money you had for that patent lifeboat I invented? Five hundred pounds, and I have made it last since Easter. Since Easter? Barely four months. Monstrous extravagance. I could live for seven years on five hundred pounds. Not keeping open house as we do here, Daddyist. Only five hundred pounds for that lifeboat. I got twelve thousand for the invention before that yes dear but that was for the ship with the magnetic keel that sucked up submarines living at the rate we do you cannot afford life-saving inventions can't you think of something that will murder half europe at one bang no i am aging fast my mind does not dwell on slaughter as it did when i was a boy why doesn't your husband invent something 
he does nothing but tell lies to women well that is a form of invention is it not however you are right i ought to support my wife indeed you shall do nothing of the sort i should never see you from breakfast to dinner i want my husband i might as well be your lapdog do you want to be my breadwinner like the other poor husbands no by thunder what a damned creature a husband is anyhow what about that harpoon cannon no use it kills whales not men why not you fire the harpoon out of a cannon it sticks in the enemy's general you wind him in and there you are you are your father's daughter hesiade there is something in it not to wind in generals they are not dangerous but one could fire a grapnel and wind in a machine-gun or even a tank i will think it out mrs hushabye squeezing the captain's arm affectionately saved you are a darling daddyist now we must go back to those dreadful people and entertain them they have had no dinner don't forget that neither have i and it is dark it must be all ours oh guinness will produce some sort of dinner for them the servants always take jolly good care that there is food in the house captain shotover raising a strange wail in the darkness what a house what a daughter what a father what a husband is there no thunder in heaven is there no beauty no bravery on earth what do men want they have their food their friends their firesides their clothes mended and our love at the end of the day why are they not satisfied why do they envy us the pain with which we bring them into the world and make strange dangers and torments for themselves to be even with us i builded a house for my daughters and opened the doors thereof that men might come for their choosing and their betters spring from their love but one of them married a numbskull the other a liar wed and now she must lie beside him even as she made her bed hesione hesione where are you the cat is on the tiles coming darling coming she goes quickly into the garden the captain goes back to his place at the table hector going out into the hall shall i turn up the lights for you no give me deeper darkness money is not made in the light End of Act One